Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host here today, broadcasting live from La Reina. 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to all the uh, stations in Iowa and beyond who rebroadcast this program. And thanks to those of you who are listening live today on either, again, 1260 AM or 96.5 FM or on the Fallon Forum website. Okay, so welcome to the Fallon Forum. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the uh, incredible slaying of 500,000 bees and what that means in, a, in the big picture, uh, that happened in northwest Iowa and is having ramifications and getting attention all across the country. Uh, we'll also welcome uh, Joel Curtinitis Kurt, uh, to the program. He's uh, a local author who um, uh, wrote a very provocative piece, I think, about uh, the fact that why, you know, why is it that ISIS is gone, allegedly, but the troops are still overseas. We'll, hear, we'll talk with him at the 11.30. And later in the program, Kim Weaver joining us to talk about the uh, Women's March and how the movement now is moving off from rallies and protests to hardcore electoral work. And finally, for those listening on our community-owned stations, we'll talk about the, the Dakota Access Pipeline lawsuit and give an update on that. But first, I want to go to our phone lines and welcome Christine Nobus of Indigenous Iowa to the program. Uh, Christine and I uh, go back a ways, and uh, she's been doing some really great work and calling uh, calling attention to a, a horrible tragedy and travesty that goes unreported, and that is the incredible uh, frequency, uh, much greater than the general population, of those who uh, of indigenous women who are missing and murdered. Uh, Christine, are you with us? I'm here. Okay, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Sure. So I am... Um, I've been uh, reviewing some of the material about this, and uh, it seems like part of the problem is that there is um, there's there's no protection provided uh, to you know, tribal governments uh, when an offending non-native person commits a crime. Uh, there, 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 until only recently, there has been no jurisdiction to do anything about that. Yeah, um, it's. It's a really interesting predicament, uh, well, interesting to say the least, uh, actually terrible predicament that tribal nations are in. Um, they don't have the, they don't have the criminal jurisdiction over uh, non-native perpetrators to, to deal with, with issues uh, within their own uh, land bases, within their territories. And that that just seems incredible. If it's your, I mean, there's a thing called sovereignty, and you would think that that would go along with sovereignty would be to be able to hold accountable those who commit injustice as and illegal actions within that sovereign, you know, nation. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it essentially provides immunity to uh, non-native offenders, um, and then this, you know, essentially compromises the safety of of our women and our men because. Um, you know, statistics show us um, that 90% of uh, Native women and men, uh, I think it's the same statistic, or around the same uh, rate, uh, experience violence at the hands of non-Native people throughout their lifetime. Yeah. So, uh, and it's, uh, this is not, I mean, I imagine some of the violence is Native on Native, but there's a, yes. a huge percentage of it that is non-Native Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and this ties into our missing and murdered Indigenous women because 
we have a very, very um, huge uh, sex trade uh, in this world and in this country. And, you know, we have to ask, you know, where some of these women are going. Um, you know, either they're being murdered, they're running away, or they're being uh, uh, sold into the sex trade. Yeah, so, I mean, missing, that this, that's, that's uh, I mean, that's, that's incredible to me. So some of them are perhaps being murdered and they, they, they come up missing. The crime is covered yeah. up. But some of them are being sold into, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's almost hard to talk about. It's so horrible. It is hard to talk about. Um, there are some huge port cities um, where it is known that, like, you know, women end up at. Uh, in Canada, for instance, like, there's a lot of women that are, are going missing. And some people think that they might go far away to, like, you know, other countries or something. But a lot of the time they end up even, like, down in, um, uh, what is it, Duluth, I think, or somewhere in Minnesota on, like, Lake Michigan at a port there. That's uh, Lake Superior, um, yeah. Yeah, or Lake Superior, yeah. And, 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 and so there's, you know, it's not as, it, let's just put it this way. Like, what's going on is, like, right underneath our noses. Yeah, and if it's right underneath our noses, you think we'd know. So why is it being ignored by the mainstream media? That's the process of colonization right there. I mean, this is, we've been through a genocide. We've been through, like, serious, um, violence and aggression and racism. Uh, we've been through all of that, but still, till to to this very day, um, we we are still written out of textbooks. We've our history has been whitewashed, and people do not understand the extent of 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 the violence that we still endure. So I've noticed that this is uh, this is an increasingly um, prominent conversation being brought forth by. Uh, native leaders like yourself and by your allies in the non-native community, and uh, I, I, I've noticed that it's uh, it's be- be getting more and more attention at the grassroots, and that's of course how all movements for change start. And how do you see this? Uh, do, do, do you see? Are, are you also? You're closer to it than I am, but my sense is there's momentum and awareness of, that are that are building right now. Um. Yes, and it's because, frankly, uh, people like myself uh, have to make that happen. We have to constantly fight to have our voices heard. Uh, we have to, we have to keep keep doing what we're doing. You know, um, being <laughs> sometimes even disliked, unfortunately. But the fact remains that right now there are five thousand. 712 known incidences of missing and murdered indigenous women as of last or as of two years ago. So that's that's missing missing and, and murdered indigenous women who we there's no resolution on those cases. We don't know where they are or who killed no, them. No, there it's it's un, um it's unclear actually just how many okay. are actually actually how many victims actually exist. But right now in the National Crime Information Database. There's that many um, known incidences of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Have you worked uh, personally with any of the families of uh, people who have uh, been missing, uh, murdered, or or come up missing? Um, recently, I spoke to Matthew Lone Bear, um, an acquaintance I made uh, at the uh, Vets for Peace conference um, back in August, and his 
his sister, Olivia Lone Bear, has been missing, I think, since November now. Mm. Um, and I don't even know what to say to him. You know, I they've been searching for her for that long. And I... <laughs> Like, I, I don't know what to say to him. Yeah. Yeah. What, what nation are, are they from? Um, I think it's, uh, oh, my goodness. I just, I, it's that's okay. My yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, they're, they're in the, uh, they're in the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota territory. Um, it just um, went off the top of my head, but they're um, next to Cheyenne River and Standing Rock. So we've got a pretty broad yeah. audience here. What would you, uh, if, if you could leave people with a thought about what they can do to uh, both become more aware of uh, the problem and also more helpful in terms of pushing for uh, solutions? What would you, what would you want to tell people? Education is key. Um, people need to make the effort to understand the situation um i i just and, and it can't just be us anymore you know jumping up and down waving our fists trying to get attention um we also need uh people from you know settler descendant society to to start making that effort um to educate as well okay that's a uh, good advice and i'm going to take it up myself i the blog that i write this week we'll talk about this we'll uh Try to include some links that people can go to to get more information and to become more educated about the problem. And again, hopefully, I mean, it seems like we made a step forward back in 2013 with the um, the uh, uh, Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act that uh, apparently didn't go the full nine yards, but it did something to uh, allow federally recognized tribes to um, to have some jurisdiction over crimes by non-natives against native people on that reservation on that in that jurisdiction. Yeah. Yes. Maybe that's a good point to start building it for and take 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 that as a stepping stone to go forward. Absolutely. Uh I I I think that that was a great step, but unfortunately with this new administration and their um imperialist misogynistic white supremacist agenda, we they, they. I'm pretty sure that there will be cuts made to the VAWA. Well, isn't and isn't so, uh, isn't Trump even talking about uh, basically eliminating sovereignty? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> did I did I hear that correctly the other day? Yes, um, he wants to privatize. So he has this 27 member Native American Council, basically made up of let's just say people that, you know, are in his favor. Uh, like, for instance, I think the four council members all have, like, they're all Native American, but they all have, like, direct ties to the, you know, the, the extraction industry. Right. And so, like, these people, like, you know, are doing themselves a favor. Um, and right. what they've told him and what they've reported upon is that they think that privatizing our nation's is going to lead to greater sovereignty. And I guess nobody really knows what that means, privatization, but I think what they're talking about is like selling off maybe certain chunks of it, um, you know, or like allowing, you know, people to buy 
into the land somehow. I don't really know. But yeah. it's it's not going to help us. Right. Well, if it's coming from this administration and it deals with uh, a racial minority or the poor or women or any any class that's not part of that uh, – that um, mainstream agenda, let's call it that. Um, <laughs> it's probably not a good deal, and so uh, yeah. But of course, they're gonna they're gonna select a handful of people who fit the profile of of advocates for you know, the native communities. But yeah, they're you can always find you can find a sellout in any community. You know, there's always somebody there who has decided to go over to the dark side because of money or power or something. And it sounds like that's what's uh, that's the facade behind this uh, this attempt. Oh, absolutely. Um, during his campaign, he spoke uh, how about um, federally recognized lands, for instance, like monuments and, and, and so forth, that obviously are extremely important uh, to Native people in many ways. And um, he, he said he would never sell off any federal, federal lands. This is what he said before he got elected. Yeah. And now that he's elected, he's doing the exact opposite right. of that. And now Bears Ears is in jeopardy, and all well, sorts of other places yeah. are potentially in jeopardy. And um, he, 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 he really doesn't. He talks about conservation, which is a loaded term in itself. But um, he, he really has no care about conservation. He really just truly cares about the extraction industry and like whatever money can be made out of you know taking everything that you know him and his administration can out of this earth. Yeah. You know, it took millions of years to corral this oil that's in the ground. It took millions of years for the earth to corral it geologically. It took geological forces to get it, you know, down there. And it's there for a reason. And humans have figured out a way to take it out of the earth in, like, a speck of that time, in a fraction of that time. There's got to be something said about, like, what the repercussions are on, on, for that. Yeah, well, that's a great segue to the final segment of this program where we talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline lawsuit that landowners here in Iowa and the Iowa's chapter of the Sierra Club have filed. Uh, there are also uh, – there's, there's legal action and action in the streets and fields across the country against the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure. And it will be interesting to see um, how some of those uh, those battles play out. But here in Iowa, we have a lot of confidence that – uh, this lawsuit is a strong one that it could make a big difference, and again, we'll talk more about that in more detail later in the program. But uh, nice segue, Christine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I know so I'm all about that too. <laughs> bring, bring it, bring it full circle to our our primary concern here: the uh, lack of coverage about the uh, disturbing number of, of of Native women and men, but women in particular, who are missing or murdered. Uh, where would you like to – and again, I will be blogging about this so people can learn more about that writing, uh, reading my blog uh, later, later today probably or at the latest. It will be out tomorrow morning. But uh, are there other resources you would recommend people check out in order to become more educated about the problem? Uh, the, the two links I sent you I think are great because um, they are uh, – it's a huge study that was done by uh, the – by the Department of uh, of Justice, and so you know that that in itself is you know legitimate and um, and a great way to get that information, and even they themselves say in this study that uh, this is not at all even the real statistic because you know it, it used to be that you know one in three uh, Native women would be raped in their lifetime. That statistic has gone down to one in two, but in reality, if you go to our nations, and if you speak to our people, 
you will find that that number is actually much, much higher. Yeah, I'm not surprised. No, it's very disturbing. Because, um, yeah, you know, it's yeah. the Department of Justice report. It's hard to imagine that the Trump administration could find a way to uh, demean that as irrelevant. He may, he, may, he may be able to, but the other story you sent me is by uh, public uh, broadcasting. And sure, that's, of course, fake news, as we all know. Uh, so. <laughs> but I will, I, I will share those links as a good, good, good resources. And if you think of anything else that people ought to know about, uh, send it my way. And again, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, actually, if you don't mind, one thing sure. that they could do is um, uh, find out more information about the Rita Popkey Foundation, which just started up, and I'm sure there'll be um, a website uh, coming up or a Facebook page come out, coming out soon, and I can get that to you. But um, that was that is being headed up by Dawson Davenport of the Meskwaki Nation, uh, and that's that's our own like local Iowa contingent of uh, Native people that are uh, getting yeah. involved. With but this is so, this is so relevant all across the country and in Alaska and Canada as well. So yeah, um, in, in Canada right now we have I think one thousand. I think almost 1,100 um, missing uh, Native women. That's that's disturbing. Well, anyway, this is a great uh, a great way to start a conversation that hasn't uh, happened as much as it needs to. And I, I hope we'll have you back on at some point with uh, some positive news about growing momentum and perhaps even some some uh, consideration among lawmakers to uh, begin to address the problem. So we'll see. But again, this is um, an important thing. I think more people need to be aware of it and more people need to learn all of us, me too, learn, need to learn more about it and speak uh, more frequently and loudly about the problem. So I really I want to thank you for taking the time to join us, Christine. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Ed. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Well, Christine Nobus, folks, with Indigenous Iowa, our guest on the first segment of this program. Okay, so uh, recently in northwest Iowa, something happened with fuzzy little bees that got the attention of the national and even international community. So um, Justin and uh, Tori Engelhart, they raise bees uh, on the very edge of, uh, of Sioux City. They've got, I think, about 100 or so hives, 50 hives, sorry, 50 hives. And uh, they came home the other, the other day and found the beehives just smashed, completely wrecked. And again, when the uh, temperature is below, I believe, about 40 degrees, Bees can't fly, and when it's as cold as it's been, especially up in northwest Iowa, they die. So 500,000 bees perished. Uh, that is a monetary damage of about $60,000. That's no small hit. Um, and even more important, the, um, the role that bees play, yeah, they make honey. We all love honey. We smear it on everything. It tastes better. But also, their key role as pollinators, it cannot be understated. They pollinate a huge percentage of our crops. And there are other pollinators as well, of course, butterflies and whatnot, but bees are key, critical. And so this was uh, basically a, you know, a crime against more than just one guy's beehives. And apparently, and it, there hasn't been a lot of conversation about this, and maybe that's fine, and maybe there won't be, but the two criminals, the two vandals, the two bee killers, we hear about killer bees, these are bee killers, the two bee killers were two boys ages 12 and 13 years old. And they now face felony charges. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of putting people in prison, generally speaking. I mean, there's a lot of corporate criminals I'd love to see go to jail. But um, especially when it comes to juveniles, youths, I mean, these kids did something incredibly stupid, incredibly bad. 
so wrong. There needs to be some accountability. I hope they don't end up in prison. Let me just say that. Maybe, you know, a great sentence would be to be con- to be sentenced to an entire summer of helping the uh, Engelharts reestablish their beehives. I mean, give them the protective clothing and even know that with the protective clothing, you're probably going to get stung once in a while. You know, apparently, uh, apparently this guy, this guy, Justin, you know, apparently getting 10 bee stings at an outing is not uncommon or nor does it phase him much, which um, is remarkable to me because uh, I'm fairly adept at the outdoors. I do. I go I go the extra mile to avoid a bee sting. And I, I've probably been stung maybe 10 times in my whole life. I cannot imagine being stung 10 times at once. So, maybe, you know, maybe our court system will see the wisdom in sentencing these kids to something relevant to their crime. I hope for that. And I also hope that this travesty is um, going to build more and more awareness about the critical role that pollinators play in our lives. Uh, and we've seen a lot of uh, I mean, beekeepers and bees themselves have faced lots of challenges in recent years including a colony collapse, which has been a mysterious um, and immensely problematic uh, syndrome. You know, hopefully this incident will actually pan out for the good for all. Maybe these kids will become beekeepers as they mature into adulthood. It sounds like in terms of uh, Justin and Tori's problem, their $60,000 of damage has already been compensated for uh, forty grand raised from various Pages, various, um, uh, what are they called again? I'm suddenly having a blank. GoFundMe pages. There we go. That's great. And uh, and hopefully, again, also out of this this crime will come awareness as to just how important it is to be nice to your bees. So, hey, folks, be nice to your bees today. Well, you probably won't. If you see any today, either you're living in a warmer climate than we are up here in the North Country or you're um, – you're imagining things that need to get psychiatric help immediately. Anyway, when we come back, folks, uh, we're going to switch gears and talk about foreign policy. We're going to talk with um, with uh, Joel Curtinitis about um, – uh, he's a, a local fellow here who does uh, some pretty provocative columns for the Des Moines Register from time to time on issues that are relative uh, across the nation and even internationally. And this one definitely has international interest. The title of his column is ISIS is Gone, So Let's Bring U.S. Troops Home. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. about love. I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. I never knew the technique of kissing. I never knew the thrill I could get from your touch. Never cared much. Oh, look at me now. I'm a new man better than Casanova at his best. With a new heart and a brand new start, I'm so proud I'm busting my vest. So I'm the guy who turned out a lover. Yes, I'm that guy who laughed at those blue diamond rings. One of those things. Oh, look at me now.
trucker bringing us back to our conversation here on the Fallon Forum. So, um, yeah, back to the conversation here. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the Women's March over the weekend and why the focus is now on voting. But first, we're going to talk with uh, Joel Curtinitis, uh, a frequent columnist for the Des Moines Register, who raised a point uh, in a column recently about um, President Trump is talking about ISIS being gone, done, no longer exists. So why are 1.3 million troops still stationed overseas? Great question, Joel, and you have the answer. Well, yeah, I have I have some thoughts on it. I don't know if I necessarily have the answer, uh, but I I think you know clearly our defense spending is out of control. Clearly, our foreign policy uh, has been incoherent for I would argue decades now. And and you you consider yourself kind of a political libertarian. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 register calls me libertarian conservative. Um, I I'm getting to the point where I think uh, labels politically are kind of exhaustive. But if I had to pick one, I'd kind of go with federalist. Honestly. Exhaustive and exhausting. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So again, why why is it that we have 1.3? We don't have any declared wars going on right now, and yet we have 1.3 million troops overseas and a big chunk of them in the Middle East. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of philosophical underpinnings that you could you could get into. Uh, one of the primary ones, in my opinion, would be that we've become kind of a society that tries to preempt everything. Um, domestically, here we like to pass laws that stop everything from happening before it happens. Overseas, we're doing the same thing. We, you know, ever since George W. Bush decided we were going to go spread democracy to the world, uh, we've been out trying to stop all the bad people before they do anything, and it's just, it's an impossible task, right? There there is no amount of manpower and military might that you can throw that's capable of doing that. And an expensive task. Well, yeah, an incredibly expensive task. Yeah. And so, and so we've had this we've had this stance of preempting everything. And I would I would also add that this has been something that's been primarily supported across the aisle. Both sides are okay with having troops deployed all over the globe yeah. at all times. This is kind of a holdover from the Cold War and a mentality shift that we haven't had yet that says we need to draw down, stop imposing our military forces all over the world, stop exerting ourselves all over the world, and stop taxing uh, Americans for it. And, and do you think uh, – is President Trump doing any better at that than previous presidents? He hasn't uh, He hasn't made any drawdowns in, in as far as doing better in – uh, reducing our presence overseas. But what I do see is that he has more opportunity to do so. And that's part of the reason that I chose to write this article now. Is but, me, with, but meanwhile, he's offending nearly every every person in every foreign country available. Uh, I mean, just there's so many things he says and does are just uh, angering not just uh, 
you know, nations we may have some tensions with, but even our closest allies. Sure. I, I come from the I come from the uh, speak softly and carry a big stick school of uh, foreign policy mentality. So to me, screaming on Twitter is counterproductive. Uh, I'd prefer that he didn't do that, but I, I'm much more interested in seeing seeing the policy change. I'm much more interested in the action that we can take to stop some of this uh, crazy foreign policy that we have going on. We've got uh, Dr. Charles Goldman on the phone here who has uh, n- never shy of an opinion when it comes to foreign policy. Charles, let's uh, bring you to the conversation. How are you, Charles? Uh, doing the, no, I'm doing so-so, Ed. That's why I can call. I'm homesick. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you need some palliative care? No, I'm not that, <laughs> not that sick. Okay, all right, good, good, good. <laughs> No, I was just listening to what you were talking about, and, and ironically, um, finally, uh, three months later, I'm finally sitting down to watch Ken Burns's uh, Vietnam War series, which I think every American should be required to watch. And getting right to what we're talking about, um, there's always slippage of the of the mission, and the mission in this military setting is we are in what. 80, 90 countries. We have troops in Africa we don't know anything about. And um, it, it, it simply sets up the situation that we muddle into these conflicts without any purpose and without any endpoint. And that's exactly what we were talking about. We just go on and on and on. Um, you know, it's a good question as to why are those troops still in Syria. And yeah. this morning is a huge flashpoint with that because we're supporting, uh, you know, Kurd groups that the Turks just bombed um <laughs> yep. you know it's 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 it, and we don't have the administration smart enough to work its way through all the ramifications of these engagements well in in fairness so so in fairness if we had had the alternative presidency right now we'd be imposing a no-fly zone over syria and the russians exactly. would be shooting at us uh, I, so. I, I, I remember that exchange <laughs> and, and that exchange also that occurred at the early republican debates when uh, you know, Ram, I guess it was Rand Paul turned and said, well, I guess we found out who's going to start World War III. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I, totally, I totally agree with that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's a case to be made that we can, we can avoid a lot of these situations and avoid a lot of these controversies by just getting out of these places and waiting until there is actually a, a credible threat to American security going on. And that doesn't mean we just sit down and ignore the world and wait for a nuke to go off on U.S. soil. That just means we can watch things without having people deployed and in harm's way all the time. Time and dropping $600 billion a year on it. Well, and, and, and conversely, we amp up threats that don't exist in order to justify expenditures uh, that please, you know, what's the greatest works program in the United States, which is the defense industry. Um, and you're seeing it happening again, because now what are we being told? We're being told that China and Russia are resurgent in terms of tr- fighting a traditional war with us, which is going to justify... You know, what are we talking about today with the budget impasse? The Republicans, the you know traditional Republicans, are going to push, despite President Trump, you know, saying I'm moving away from these kind of engagements, uh, into spending even more money on our military. Yeah, well, Joel, is that part of your concern? Is the is the sheer cost of this uh, misguided foreign policy? Well, yeah, it is, and, and the cost in dollars is huge. I mean, we've we've brought up about six hundred billion dollars, but I think if you include all defense related spending, including pensions and things like that, and uh, VA, I think you're up around eight hundred billion. Actually, is the number. So it's it's incredibly costly to us. Now, what I will give it is that out of all the spending that we do, this one is um, constitutionally preeminent, right? I mean, we do have we do have a, a responsibility to defend the nation from attack. So I could justify some 
become that way. But when you're spending three times what the rest of the, the you know the, the uh, modern countries in the world are spending on your military, it's too much. And and there's so much waste going on. But even that pales in comparison to the cost in human life. Yes. And that yeah. is the part that's become, you know, it's just over here we sit and we read it in the papers and it's just an empty statistic, but it's not an empty statistic. These are people, these are people with families but now, here but, and overseas. But now, but now here, I mean, there's, there, there is a constant drumbeat for more military spending, a constant drumbeat for more war. And uh, and we see that manifested in various ways. Uh, most recently here in Iowa, we have a, just last week, we have a, a legislator um, and, uh, you know, people behind him that want a bill basically that would require uh, that uh, a, a lot of pro-military stuff be taught in the schools. I, which I, I guess I wasn't far, unless you're are you referring to the one that's like teach the Bible in school? No, no, no different, one. <laughs> different one. Okay, <laughs> I, was, I was about to say yeah. like where no, are we no, going no, with no, pro-military? Those are probably going to come. Those are probably going to go from the same committee, but uh, but no, sure. this this one would be talking about you know more awareness about the uh, about uh, and again I I want us to be aware of what challenges the troops, mm-hmm. you know, sure. people who are in harm's way face. But this was more of a. Uh, a rah rah. Let's. And, and it was. It was all about trying to promote the need for that. And again, as you point out, what is the need? Sure. And it's, it's look. None of this is to say that we don't have valid security threats. There are valid security threats to the United States. Our military does an amazing job of keeping us safe. We do need to have people looking out for our interests, especially in an age where we've mostly moved away from conventional warfare and into guerrilla tactics and terrorism and these kinds of things. The need for vigilance is huge. That doesn't give a blank check to the American government to do whatever they want, to implement whatever emergency procedures they want, to take whatever authority they want. And and it's even more troubling, and as I mentioned in the article, that Congress has very little say in this anymore. Right. It's entirely the executive, and it's been that way for multiple administrations. Well, uh, Joe, I usually like to give my guests the final word, but since Charles is on his deathbed, and this may be his last chance to have anything <laughs> to say on a radio program. Charles, you, got, you want to get the final word in here? Well, I, I, I think that one of the dangers we have right now is that as Joel said, the uh, legislative branch is completely a uh, lapdog to the military. And as we have fewer and fewer people who have the military experience and have the experience of the insanity of war, it's very easy to um, you know just be a, a rah-rah society for our military. You know, as the participation of the of the people in general, you know, plummets. I mean, we have a we have a in some sense a mercenary army that fights for for what is supposed to be a citizen's army, a citizen's military. That's what the you know the United States was founded on. This is not a representative military, yeah. and um, it, that makes it very easy for people to cheerlead wars they would never send their own children to. Um, I think that's a huge danger we have right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, Charles, thanks for calling in. <laughs> My pleasure. Get well soon. I will. Thanks. All right. And, Joel, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with uh, Joel Curtinitis, a frequent uh, columnist uh, for the Des Moines Register and perhaps other places that I'm unaware of. I do. Yeah, I do some online writing for uh, the Knock Report, NOQ uh, Report. NOQ? Yes. That right, stands for Red for? State. Uh, news Opinion and Quotes. Okay. Uh, it's a great site to just stay uh, ahead of everything. It's very, uh, very concise and very informative. Uh, I write for Red State. I did write for The Blaze for a good while, The Liberty Conservative, other places like that. All right. Well, I'm always looking to find ways of building bridges between, uh, uh, you know, across the political divide, and I think we've accomplished that today. So Absolutely. Maybe next time we have you on the show, we'll, we'll get into a, a good – Good, uh, a good little fist fight. Oh yeah! Hey, if you keep me on for the women's <laughs> march segment, we could we could get pretty close. <laughs>
Well, I'm sorry. I can't. I have another guess for no, that. I'm just but, kidding. But next time, there will be more of that. Okay. <laughs> Joining us on the phone is uh, Kim Weaver. She's with the Iowa Women's March and one of the key organizers in the uh, recent and I think very successful uh, march that saw 6,000 people show up at the Iowa State Capitol this weekend, along with uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, across the country and across the globe. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Sure. And I know that uh, there's been a shift in focus from just marching and protesting to getting people interested in voting. Exactly. Um, We're seeing that there are many consequences to not voting and not showing up. And one of those is, you know, we elect or don't elect people who support the things that are important to us. And if we want change to happen, we need to make sure that we support the people who actually support the key issues that are important. And what are those key issues? Um, Racial equality is a huge one that we we really need to focus on and something that, you know, a lot of people, as you know, I, I ran for Congress last year against Steve King, and he is obviously one of the most racist white supremacists that I know of. And so you keep voting people in like that, and the issues such as racial equality is certainly not not going to be addressed. And do you think do you think the momentum that uh, the women's marches are is generating is going to have any impact on yes, some absolutely. of these okay absolutely um i don't you know you were at the march yesterday you saw the diversity of speakers that we had um we also had different organizations represented and one of the things that you know we really emphasized was that people need to pick something that's important to them and do something about it and if they aren't registered to vote get registered to vote and make sure they show up at the polls and the national organization had um, had a convention yesterday with the main uh, theme being power to the polls. And so mm. we really want to encourage people to exercise their constitutional right to vote. And I believe nationally the, the main focus is on a, a women's march in Las Vegas, correct? Correct. Um, that was um, an organization they were going to be having about basically power to the polls. Get out and vote. Make a difference. Yeah, and how did yeah, that, that did that come off pretty well? I've never really not really seen any coverage of that. Event. Well, you know, you know, to be honest, um, I was a little tired. After the event. <laughs> I'll bet you were. I'll bet you were. Yes. <laughs> so I've heard that it went very well. I haven't seen any footage or anything like that at this point, but I I did hear that it went well. I have no idea how many people went um, or or how it went over. Yeah. Well, it's a I mean, early early indications are that voters have some remorse about the election in 2016. The uh, <laughs> President Trump's popularity is at historic lows. Uh, you've seen some, you know, party shifts in elections in Virginia, in New Jersey, in Alabama. Uh, although you could argue that that had a lot more to do with uh, <laughs> with with uh, pedophilia than anything else, but who knows? Uh, but well, even you know, people of color, people of color in Alabama saved the day. To be honest, um, they got out and voted in record numbers when other people didn't, and it was um, it was a historic event. And I do believe that a lot of it had to do with the fact that people are saying, "Oh my gosh, yeah. this is what happens." 
So, uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the things that are happening, the policy changes, the uh, the crazy tweets, and uh, a lot of other things are, are mobilizing people to take action. But there's a there's a big problem out there that a lot of people identify, at least, and that is uh, an anemic Democratic Party that still has not woken up to the fact that it cannot it can no longer be seen as the party of the status quo or things aren't going to go the Democrats' way. Is that analysis, is that flawed, or is there some truth to that analysis? Oh, well, I would agree with it. Um, that's kind of my opinion as well. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expect something different to happen. And unless the party wakes up and sees that, I don't see a lot of change. Do you think we, the party has woken up? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I believe that members of the party have, some of them have. But the general establishment or traditional organization, I think, still hasn't quite caught on that we can't keep doing things the way we do them. And as an example is I've been preaching for years that we need to run people in every district in Iowa State House and State Senate, even if it's a very red district, yeah. because people just don't see Democrats on the ballot. And I'm, I'm still not seeing, even though it was a big issue in the IDP, Iowa Democratic Party chair race, is, oh, we, you know, we're going to support every county. I, I don't Didn't see happen, that happening yeah. yet. Um, Kim, it's still, still new, but I've, it could happen. I've got to wrap up the show, Kim, so thank you for joining us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Kim Weaver, organizer of the uh, Women's March in Iowa, a former congressional candidate, and a con- continuing her efforts to uh, call attention to problems in our world and do something about them. Thanks uh, so much for joining us on the program. If you're listening on our community-owned station, stay tuned. We're going to talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline. If you miss it on this station, we'll have a podcast available with that segment just uh, shortly after the show. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here as we continue our conversation about the stuff that matters that often doesn't get covered by the mainstream media. Or if it gets covered, it's uh, kind of premature or oftentimes minimal. And that, that would be a, a, you know, minimal would be a good description to, dis, to, to um, reference how the mainstream media is dealing with the lawsuit that has been filed in Iowa against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, there are lawsuits happening all over the country against uh, fossil fuel expansion projects. Some of them are fracking. Some of them involve oil or gas. Um, and some of them involve pipelines. In this case, uh, we've seen legal action in North Dakota filed by the Standing Rock Sioux and other tribes. And in Iowa, the movement is being led by landowners and environmentalists. Uh, specifically, there are nine landowners who have at their own expense and through great time and effort have filed a lawsuit alleging that the Dakota Access Pipeline was illegally issued the use of eminent domain. Iowa law says that eminent domain must be used for a public purpose. This law change happened back in 2006 after the uh, famous Kelo versus New London lawsuit where the Kelo family had land taken by the city of New London for a private commercial purpose the Kelo family sued. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court came down on the side of the city against the property owner. And so what happened after that 
was, uh, again, the, the, the Kilo family lost, but that loss inspired incredible action across the country. I, I can't remember how many states. I want to say nearly half the states in, in the U.S. came forth with some kind of legislation to try to make it clear that, no, even if the federal court rules against the property owner, we're going to tighten the law at, at the state level to make it clear that a private purpose cannot be given the authority of eminent domain. And that happened in Iowa. It happened overwhelmingly, bipartisanly. Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate both supporting by like 90, 90 to 10, I think, in the House, legislation that said you can't use eminent domain for a private purpose. And so I think a lot of people were surprised when the Iowa Utilities Board gave the Dakota Access the authority to use eminent domain. And, yeah, and, and, and there, there's still some people who are shaking their head over that one. And some of them involve landowners who had land taken by force. And they're, they're insisting that this was wrong, that this is not a public purpose. And the, and the oil company, uh, as far as I understand their defense, they say, well, you know, Everybody gets to use this oil. Because, I mean, it's not like an historical eminent domain function. When eminent domain is used to build a road or a water line, a sewer line, a power line, a fiber optic line, gas line, all these things, the folks who live along that route get to use that service. This is unique in that nobody in Iowa gets to use the oil that flows from North Dakota to Illinois, and even folks in North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois don't get to use it either. But the pipeline company's argument is that people along the pipeline route will get to use that because it will come back to them in the form of gasoline they put in their cars. Now, that is such an incredible stretch. Because first of all, this is crude oil flowing through Iowa that's going to be refined in Texas, and much of it is being shipped overseas. And how do we know this? Well, the 40-year ban on the export of crude oil was just lifted. As the pipeline was being built, that ban was lifted, allowing this company and other companies to export that crude oil to the highest bidder. I mean, I suspect much of it is going to China. That's a bit of research we need to learn more about. But the bottom line is, for them to say that this is a public purpose because everybody gets to use some of that gasoline... You know, that's an argument was made by an Iowa farmer who didn't like what he was seeing with the use of eminent domain to take his land. He said, you know, how is this any different than giving a, a, a mall the right, to, the right to condemn land for eminent domain and then argue that it's a public purpose because everybody's going to go to that mall and buy something? This argument's not much better. It's pretty, pretty, it's really weak. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, that that argument will have some sway. We'll see. Now, the other element of the lawsuit is the uh, Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club. And they argue that the pipeline permit should not be, not have been issued. The pipeline company should not have been issued a permit by the utilities board because they did not meet a certain standard referenced as um, public public um, convenience and necessity. They argued that there was no, you know, you know, 
when you um when you increase the uh, availability of electricity in an area that you know that, that struggles with power outages or when you provide broadband internet service in an area that doesn't have quick quick access you could argue that there is a public convenience and necessity being met by in those two examples but how do you make that argument when you're merely pumping oil through the state onto Texas for refining some of which may some of the gasoline produced then may stay in the US some may come back to Iowa most of it's probably going overseas or going elsewhere how do you argue that's public necessity and convenience yeah, I, I don't get it. And uh, we'll see what happens. But this is a really, really important lawsuit. It's not getting a lot of attention. Again, a lot of things that are really important don't get a lot of attention because we're so focused on the president's uh, tweet or or football. And again, I say that as a big fan of Tom Brady. But I, I, I admit that, you know, when we when when the news tends to focus on things that are that are uh, you know, that are very um they, they shock you, they amaze you, they upset you, but they don't really get to the hardcore stuff that really makes a difference because this is not just about the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is not just about Iowa. Uh, already we're seeing eminent domain case law building in the direction that, that a lot of people hope it goes, and that is that property owners have more rights. We've seen cases in other states, West Virginia, um, where else? I want to say um, Illinois even. I, I'm blanking on the list, but there's a growing list of states that have seen action on eminent domain in the courts that add to case law that makes it clear that eminent domain should not be used for a private purpose. So if this case in Iowa goes the way that the landowners and the Sierra Club want it to go, it could have a similar impact and an impact far broader than the pipeline because, again, if uh, this pipeline is ruled to be a public purpose, then again, why is not the mall owner who wants to build a mall because it's a, it's a public purpose because you're going to go there someday and shop. And that's the convenience and necessity that you need. How, how is that any different? So this is, um, this is a significant, a significant conversation. And it's disappointing to see so little conversation about it in the mainstream media. I'm hoping that changes and there are a lot of folks right now uh, who understand how important this is, who are, who are having more conversations, who are trying to elevate the public's understanding of why this is an important, uh, important issue beyond the pipeline. And again, of course, you can't deny the, the fact that, that there's a water quality concern. It's not, again, it's, it, we've always said it's never a question of if the pipeline breaks. It's a question of when and where. And the Dakota Access Pipeline has already leaked five times. It's been operating less than a year, and it's leaked five times. And, of course, there's always also the concern about climate change. When you've got over 500,000 barrels of oil pumping through a pipeline every day, uh, there's no doubt that you're going to have a huge carbon footprint from that. Some estimates are that it's the equivalent of between 20 and 30 new coal-fired power plants. You know, that's not an impact the planet can sustain. So, again, I think this is a really, really important uh, conversation, uh, a very important lawsuit, and one that I hope people begin to pay attention to, regardless of how you feel about the pipeline. Even if your primary concern is property rights and, and, uh, and people's ability to use their land the way they want, not the way some private company wants. 
Thanks, folks. You've been listening to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon. Check out the podcast on the Fallon Forum website and be and tune in again live every Monday at 11 o'clock on 96.5 FM and online at FallonForum.com. That old black magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine That same old tingle that I feel inside And when that elevator starts its ride Then down and down I go Round and round I go Like a leaf that's caught in the tide I should stay away, but what can I do? I hear your name, and I'm aflame Aflame with such a burning desire That only a kiss can put out the fire For you're the lover I have waited for you're the mate that fate had me created for and every time your lips meet mine darling down and down I go round and round I go in a spin I'm loving the spin I'm in I'm loving that old black magic called love 